But what one does realize is that when you try to stand up and look the world in the face like you had a right to be here, without knowing the results of it, you have attacked the entire power structure of the Western world. From The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and a Recently, I've been thinking a lot about the work of James Baldwin, and in particular, this one speech that he gave about the racial problem in America. We are going to hear a clip today. It is from Horace Ove's 1969 short film called Baldwin's N-Word, and like so much of his work, it feels like he's describing this very moment in time. And then the other thing you'll hear, I think, is his patriotism. James Baldwin wanted to make our country and world the best possible place for everyone. That is true of the people protesting in 1967 that he describes, and it's also true of the people protesting today. Hearing from queer figures like James Baldwin, it always makes me feel just a little bit more grounded. And I think it also shows why we unfortunately have to continue to say that yes, black lives do matter, and why saying that is also just the beginning of the work that we have to do. So to that, we've got some links in the show notes. If you're still looking for resources for how to get involved, where to start, feel free to check all of those out. And then without further ado, here's James Baldwin. My school really was the streets of New York City. My frame of reference was George Washington and John Wayne. No. Um, and you are formed by what you see, the choices you have to make, and the way you discover what it means to be black in New York. And I know how, as you grow older, you watch in the richest city in the world, the richest, freest nation in the world, in the Western world, I know how you watch as you grow older, literally. And this is not a figure of speech. The corpses of your brothers and your sisters pile up around you. And not for anything they have done. They were too young to have done anything. In any case, too helpless. But what one does realize is that when you try to stand up and look the world in the face like you had a right to be here, when you do that, without knowing that this is the result of it, you have attacked the entire power structure of the Western world. And let's speak plainly. We know, everybody knows, no matter what the professions of my unhappy country may be, that we are not bobbing people out of existence in the name of freedom. If we are concerned with freedom, boys and girls will not, as I stand here, be perishing in the streets of Harlem. We are concerned with power, nothing more than that. And most unluckily for the Western world, it has consolidated its power on the backs of people who are now going to die rather than be used any longer. In short, the economic arrangements of the Western world proved to be too expensive for most of the world. And the Western world will change these arrangements. All these arrangements will be changed for them. This is what is beneath all the rhetoric and all those rather shameful speeches coming from my president. This imposes on us, then, a very considerable burden. I, for example, do have, in principle at least, a choice. I can make a living. I'm well enough known to be an ornament. 
In short, I could ally myself on the side of what I most seriously consider to be a criminal nation. But if I can't do that, then I have to examine all the reasons that I can't. When it's tried, I tried for a long time in my own person, in, you know, in things I wrote and things I said. I don't mean that I was alone, but I'm using myself as an example. To convey to my countrymen, white and black, the nature of our danger and where we were going to go if we could not resolve the situation in our cities and in our streets, in our houses, if the day comes when you realize that you cannot make yourself heard, that the people whom you are addressing are pleased, and the plea is a very simple one. It's saying, look at it. Forget all the mountains of nonsense that have been written and everything that's been said. What you have to look at is what is happening in this country, and what is really happening is a brother has murdered brother knowing it was his brother. White men have lynched Negroes knowing them to be their sons. White women have had Negroes burned knowing them to be their lovers. It is not a racial problem. It's a problem whether or not you're willing to look at your life and be responsible for it and then begin to change it. That great Western house I come from is one house. And I am one of the children of that house. Simply, I'm the most despised child of that house. And it is because the American people are unable to face the fact that, in fact, I am flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone, created by them. My blood, my father's blood is in that soil. They can't face that. And that is why the city of Detroit went up in flames. And one has got to decide, I think, that the actual and the moral basis of which the world we know now rests, are obsolete. Insofar as they're obsolete, they are wicked. Insofar as they're obsolete, they are oppressive. It is simply not conceivable that for another 500 years or 200 years or 100 years should live and die in the mines, being treated like animals to make other people rich. The civilization which is doing this, by doing this, dooms itself. It is not possible to agree with it, nor is it possible to compromise with it. Freedom is a much, much overused word, and it may not be as real as slavery, which is a very concrete thing, but freedom is what one's after. And as it cannot, I suppose, be given, then it obviously must be taken. And lest anyone misunderstand me, I'm not really talking about color. I'm not talking about race. I don't really believe in race. I don't really believe in color. But I do know what I see. I do know that in, in the very same way that the American Negro situation menaced everybody in the country, and now it is visible. What happened in Detroit is, the, is perfectly logical, and the lesson is plain. What happened says, if I can't live in this city, you can't live in this city either. When a city goes under martial law, everybody in the city is under martial law. If I can't walk out and buy a loaf of bread safely, neither can the housewife. That's why he's on the, on the range learning how to shoot a pistol in the land of the free and the home of the brave. <laughs> but we all know who's in the streets of America. We know who, to whom we are referring when you talk about crime in the streets. We know the son of the president of Pan Am is not in the streets. Only one person in the streets. That's me. 
and they're plotting to shoot me. In the name of freedom. Dignified by law. And I'm supposed to agree. I'm supposed to agree. The question is, what shall we do? Everyone knows it. The question's in everybody's lap. From Washington to London. Everybody knows it. They're trying to figure out what to do. We should figure out what to do. Thank you. And that was James Baldwin from Horace Ove's 1969 short film, Baldwin's N-Word. If you want to let us know what you think about the episode or recommend a guest for a later one, I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. The podcast is on Twitter at LGBTQPod. We're produced by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. We'll see you next week. Bye.